Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. That's the third time I've said it, haven't I? I'll explain why. I, uh, my family and I have been, well, Ezra and I have been ill this week, and um, I was pretty pretty sick. So I finally went, my wife finally coaxed me into going to the doctor and I got some antibiotics and um, I'm starting to feel better. But one of the things I'm doing is taking a decongestant. I don't know about you, but decongestants make me pretty loopy. So if you already noticed, I've said good morning three times, you know, I've, I've missed, I've like had you stand when you should have been seated. And there are things like that that are going to continue to go on today. Like I need this mic, I need this stand, for example, you know, and I just put it over here. So you're going to have to bear with me. I don't know, I don't know how it's going to go. Pray for me. We are in a 13-part series of Philippians. And uh, we're doing something new with this series. We're tracking along on Sunday with the text and what Paul has to say to the Philippian church and what that means to us, particularly about how we're rooted down into Christ. And that produces immense joy in our life, immense peace, and real practical implications for the way that we live and the way that we interact with one another and the world around us. Um, the, what we're doing in our home meetings then is to also track through. There's a great study that's in book form done by Sinclair Ferguson, and um, he unpacks the passages, same passages that we're going through in a small group format where you can read the questions together the, um, and, and just work through the passage, work the passage into your life after we've gone through it on Sunday. So I'm excited about the series. It's, an, it's a phenomenal book. There are many verses and passages that have been real nourishment to me over the years that become, you know how some verses become radioactive to your heart uh, where your heart is just um, resonant with them, you know, it's like uh, if you, sometimes if you have a, a, a piano and there's a frequency of another instrument that comes out loudly, the strings on the piano will vibrate in resonance with the, the big sound that's coming from the other instrument it's the same thing with the truths of the gospel and so we're looking at Philippians together um, this morning, and what I want to talk about is that Paul, Paul here wants the Philippians to work out for themselves. He's not sure. Remember, he's writing from prison. He's not sure if he's going to be around to help them work it out. So he's wanting them to work out for themselves, thoughtfully, in obedience to the gospel, work out for themselves what being saved, what being saved will mean in practice. So last week, we looked at God assessing through 9, 9 through 11. We looked at God assessing and then reacting to the worth of the son's life of obedience. The son gave himself up in humility and the father exalted him. In the same way, we're going to consider this week what it means to um, respond in our lives to the example of Christ and determine what a worthy response is. Okay, who is Jesus? What, he's done? what has he done? 
and what is our response to be? So our agenda this morning, we're going to look at our responsibility. I've got water, I've got cough drops, so bear with me, as I said. We're going to look at our responsibility. Uh, Verse 12, to work out our own salvation. And that's an interesting topic. A lot of Christians get confused there, so we're going to unpack that a little bit. And then verse 15, shine as light. So we're just going to look at two main big points and spend some time meditating on those. Uh, Verse 12, work out your own salvation. As I already said, a lot of Christians, many Christians, perhaps you, or perhaps if you're not a Christian and you've been looking from the outside in and you've seen Christians confused about this, maybe you have this understanding, um, but a lot of people think that this verse means that you're responsible for your own salvation. You're responsible for your own salvation. Um, Sometimes that takes the form of, you know, based on what I do, God will bless me. Sometimes that takes the form of, okay, I know that Jesus brings me to God, but now that I'm in relationship through Jesus with God, now I have to try really hard to please God, and I have a lot riding on me, and I can lose my salvation, that sort of thing. So people have misunderstood this. It really misses what's here in the text. And to miss it in this way, to think that it's about yourself, right, and your work, is a lot like uh, I was thinking about, there's a scene in one of the Harry Potter books, uh, Cold Medicine, I can't remember which one, but Harry Potter breaks his arm playing Quidditch. And Professor Lockhart comes over, and Professor Lockhart is a poser. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not really good at magic, and he doesn't really know what he's doing, and he's making a big show. He said, I will heal you, and Harry, no, don't heal me, you know. And he, he waves his wand, and they pick up Harry's arm, but it's like a, a big, there's, there are no bones left in the arm. And Harry's, to Harry's shock, and his friends, he's no bones left. You took out all his bones. He said, ah, but the, the point is you don't feel any pain. Right? And uh, of course he doesn't feel any pain. He doesn't have any bones. The point is that he can't use what he doesn't have. Right? And so they had to take Harry off and regrow his bones. A very painful process, I understand. <laughs> um, Paul's concept here introduces us to working out our salvation. Think about working out in the gym. Working out your muscles in the gym. Right? You already have your muscles. There's a, there's a, um, I was reading a book called You Are Your Own Gym by a, uh, an ex-Navy SEAL, and he trains Navy SEALs. And so he, what he would do is train this elite group of soldiers, right, to use their own body weight so that they could exercise and stay fit and stay ready for combat no matter where they were at. They didn't need to go into a gym. They didn't need special equipment. And I can tell you, I tried uh, doing the first week of exercises, even the first day. I almost threw up because using your own body weight is really intense. You can work yourself very hard without any special equipment. You already have the equipment you need is his point in that book. In the same way, Paul's concept here is that you've already got, if you like, work out in the gym with your muscles, you've already got your muscles. Work out your salvation in Jesus, you've already got your salvation. So what does it mean to work it out? What does it mean to build it and strengthen it and nourish it and be strong in it? It's not that you don't have it, it's that you have it and you're not using it. And he says right there, your own salvation, you own it, it's yours. Through Jesus. It's free gift from God and grace. You can take it up. You can make use of it. 
Um, it's just like, you know, what, does it, what good does it do if, let's say somebody leaves you a ton of money and you've been struggling financially and they leave you a ton of money in the bank and you know that it's there and you can't pay your rent and you can't buy groceries and you, you can't, you know, you're really struggling. You're hungry. You're going to bed with a hollow feeling in your stomach. You can't um, do anything. And yet you have all these riches in the bank that you're not drawing upon. Right? It's yours. Draw upon what's yours. Work it out. Be awed by it. Have energy in your response to it. Don't just take it for granted. Don't just leave it in the bank, as it were. Right? So how are we to work out our salvation Paul talks about a couple of different things. He talks about fear. He talks about trembling. And we're going to look at a couple, each of those things. What does fear, be fearful, mean? When we're responding to our salvation, working it out, what it looks like, we're strengthening it, what it looks like in our lives. It means to be full of awe God. You know, see verse 13. For it is God who works in you. That's personal language. God in you. God in you, working. He's working for you. He's not against you. He's coaching you in his spirit. He loves you. And he does not despise you because of the gospel. He's with you. It's personal language. Fear or awe is not the fear of a person being tried by judge and jury about to be sentenced. Now, I know that a lot of you have struggled in your life with feeling towards God that way as though you have trouble approaching him because you feel shame and you feel guilt and you feel sense of condemnation and you feel sense of accusation. So when you approach him, you feel like you're going to approach a God who will sentence you, who will judge you. That's what Luther, Martin Luther, when he was studying, uh, when he was studying the righteousness of God is revealed, is a famous passage that Paul writes, the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel. He initially thought that it meant the, where, the, whereby a righteous God deals righteously with a, a miserable sinner who has no business in his presence. And he always felt a real sense of um, anxiety whenever he would pray, whenever he would approach God. And there was a time where he broke through, where he realized, oh, he's not talking about my righteousness. He's talking about Jesus' righteousness given to me. And that's how I approach God. And therefore, I don't have to be anxious. Therefore, I don't have to fear Right? So it's not the fear of about to be sentenced. It's to be personally in awe of God, who's no longer your judge through the gospel, but now he's what? Instead of, instead of being a judge, he's your loving father. I was listening to, as we were worshiping, I forget it was whether it's one of the songs or one of the prayers, there was a, a little child in our service who was crying out, Dada, Dada, Dada. That's your approach to God through Jesus. Do you understand how comprehensive that is? How, you know, a child's full weight is put into that and dependence in that verse. Dad, I, I want you. I want to be with you. I love you, right? And what's Dada's response? I love you too. Come sit with me. Come sit in my lap. Let me hold you. Right? Our relationship to God has changed through what Jesus has done. So to be personally in awe of God is no longer to have him as your judge, but have him as our father who loves you so much. He's so worthwhile in his character and the way that he loves you, right? That you're personally in awe of him. Have you ever had somebody express that much love, that much beauty in who they are for your benefit? It's powerful. It's powerful. And that's the way God acts towards you. 
It's so important to you personally, so dear to you, and so lovely, his, his relationship with you, that you're in awe. You never want to do anything that would hurt him. So fear has to deal with that, okay? But we also have the idea of trembling. <clears throat> I think this is best probably gotten across, meaning full of energy from God. Think adrenaline, right? You're so excited that your muscles can't contain it and they're trembling with energy. Have you ever experienced that? I remember one Thanksgiving, I went home from college. Um, I had told, I was living between, you know, college years. In the summer, I was going to live with my grandparents. That's just the way life unfolded me, for me at the time. And um, I couldn't make it home one Thanksgiving. I had been home every Thanksgiving. I couldn't make it home. And some friends chipped in to get me a ticket. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to, I've already told them I'm not coming home. I'm going to work with one person inside the family to, to come and surprise my grandfather. And so I remember uh, coming home, the, the, friend, the person inside the family, picked the insider, picked me up and dropped me off down the street so nobody would see a car coming. And, and I walked right up to the front stairs, up the stairs to the front door, and I knocked. And it was my grandfather who opened. And when he opened it, and he, he, he firmly did not expect that I would be there. When he opened it, he saw me. He just fell into my arms, and he was shaking a bit, right? There's, there's a sense of trembling. That sense of trembling has gotten across here. When you work out your salvation, and when you understand what it means that you've been saved, when you put it to use, when you exercise it, you're in awe of God, right? And you're trembling with energy from him to do for him the things that he would, that are like his character. To work out your salvation in this way is incredibly balanced. Look at verse 13. There's an internal aspect to it. It's God who works in you, right? God is working in you. So it's stemming from the internal personal relationship that you have with God living in you through his Holy Spirit, through what Jesus has done. We've been saying that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. You're coming into relationship with the living Lord, and he gives you his spirit to grow you up, to nourish you. We're going to go to the Lord's Supper in a, in a short while. Jesus is spiritually present in that, nourishing us, building us up in our faith, all right? So it's incredibly, it's incredibly balanced. There's an internal aspect to it, but there's an external aspect to it, too, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So all of this is to say that working out our salvation, we should understand, is engaging our wills through the Holy Spirit and working hard for his good pleasure. It's personal language. It's doing things in a way that you know bring pleasure to God. Is your relationship to God like that? Do you think about how you can bring pleasure to him? You know, I was... Um, I haven't asked permission for this, so she... <laughs> She's going to not like me for this. Uh, I was thinking about um, Anne-Marie and her 30th birthday. It was the 30th birthday, you know, and it was a big one. And, and the problem with Anne-Marie is that she is the most perceptive, discerning person I know. I mean, she can read you like nobody else can read you, you know, and I've learned a lot from her. So I remember when we were first dating, she was in London for six months, and I went over to visit stayed with some friends, and uh, we were, she and I were out to dinner, and we were in some sort of uh, Americanized pizza cafe bar kind of thing. It was a strange reaction to London. We ate American food while we were there. I don't know what that was about. 
But we were in this pub area, and we were sitting together, and she was, you know, she was talking to me. We're engaged. We're, we're discussing life and dreams and whatever a young couple does. And uh, she was talking about how she, she was looking away for a moment. When I was talking. I said, are you paying attention? She said, oh, yeah, I've got everything. I've got everything you're saying, and I've got everything that's going on around in this bar, too. I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, that couple over there, she's not really enjoying her date with him. So he's getting up to go to the restroom, and she's going to call a friend to come pick her up and, and get her out of there. And that's exactly what happened. And she began to go down, like the people sitting at the bar and the waitresses and the waiters, and gives descriptions about what was going on for them personally in these moments. So that's how she is. Now, imagine trying to give a good gift to a person like that. It's really hard. I can't surprise her. So I thought for the 30th birthday, what do I do? How do I show, how do I bring her pleasure when she's going to read my every move? And I thought, I'm going to send her down a false trail, right? So I planned a surprise party for her that was meant to be a dud. It was meant to set me up as not understanding who she is and what she likes and what would thrill her and what would engage her and what would give her pleasure. And it was perfect. It was such a good redirect, she cried in the bathroom. <laughs> and the end of the night came, what had happened was, so this, this party, this false party that picked up a, a, on a personal theme, she likes... In that time, she liked Southwestern kind of stuff, right? So we had an Arizona theme, and people came in cowboy boots and hats, and it was just really, really bad. Um, but to her credit, she, you know, she, um, she overcame her grief at my ineptitude, and she was a good sport the rest of the night. Well, we were waiting for one other friend to arrive for the whole night. And what had happened, behind the scenes, we had all gathered in and chipped in. We were poor, struggling artist types. We had all chipped in, and we bought her a plane ticket to London for the very next morning. And I had already packed her bags and hidden them. And so at the end of the party, we all sprung that on her and yelled, surprise, and it was perfect. She, she, was, she, had no, she couldn't use her faculties. She couldn't, um, she couldn't discern and sort of read what was going on. And we got her. And we, sh we gave her great pleasure. And she went and had a great trip with her friend. Do you think, do you put that much energy into your relationship personally with God? Do you think about how to please him like that? That's what this is about. There's an external thing, engaging your will and working through his spirit for his good pleasure. His pleasure is good. His pleasure is beautiful. You want to see it brought out. And so you want to live because of his love for you and because of your love for him to give him good pleasure. All right, so working out your salvation with fear and trembling. But also, verse 15, shine as lights. What we're talking about here in shining as lights is knowing and applying the gospel to everything that you do. Knowing and applying the gospel. Paul quotes in this verse, he's quoting Daniel 12.3. You know what Daniel 12.3 says? I didn't, so I went and looked at it. <laughs> and those who are, are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, that 
phrase in Daniel, what it does is it speaks of the wise. Who are the wise? When Daniel was writing, it was the Israelites skilled in knowing and applying God's law, especially in a time of persecution, which was Daniel's context. Knowing and applying God's law, shining in that way, knowing and applying God's law in the world that was around them, in a place that was not what they were familiar with. They were in captivity. There were all kinds of injustices going on. And yet knowing and applying God's law was what the way that they would shine, bringing many people to righteousness was the way that they would shine. Now, Daniel also very closely connects that promise of God with a promise that God would raise the dead, and that's going to come up in Philippians later. So there's, you have to remember, Paul's a Jew. He's a scholar. He's like an Old Testament professor at Westminster Seminary, right? He knows the Bible inside and out, and at that time, the only Bible they have is the Old Testament scriptures. And so his writings to the New Testament church are ripe full, chock full of all these kinds of references. You've got to realize of the, the deep continuity of, of the scripture when you read. Why does Paul quote Daniel like this here? Paul's saying that the Philippians are to be wise, skilled at knowing and applying the gospel. All right? And there to be a sign of light and beauty in the world, of darkness and ugliness. There'd be a sign of God's new life in the world that only knows the way to death. When you work out your salvation and what that means practically in awe of God and with energy that he gives you through his spirit, you are a beacon of hope that others need. The sign of God's beauty in the world that has all but defaced it. It's all but defaced that beauty. So what's the key? What's the key to being a light, to shining out? First, um, there's an, you know, we talked about that internal and external process. We have the internal process, which is Jesus and the gospel. We have the external process, which is working out of that gospel what's already yours. Paul says that it is yours. You know, in verse 15, we talked about, Paul talks about your blamelessness, right? Verse 15, your blamelessness. Now, you're not blameless, You need a savior. Jesus didn't come to die for the blameless. He came to die for those who were to blame so that you wouldn't be blamed. Do you understand? So the very first thing when you think of blamelessness is that you need to think not about your own record. You need to think about Jesus' blamelessness on your behalf. You stand in that. Remember, it's God who works in you. So you begin there, and that leads to blamelessness. Right? And that leads practically to blamelessness. I'll give you an example. I've had several dreams in my life, um, and I've talked to other guys and, and gals who have had dreams similarly where you wake up and you feel incredibly bad. I mean, you might be in tears, you have an intense sense of weight, you feel guilt. You feel guilt and shame and. Nathan Cotter. You feel guilt and shame <laughs> and, uh, and condemnation. If the dream wasn't true, but you feel like it was. The gospel, your blamelessness in Jesus, can bring about your blamelessness in that moment. You know, a simple moment where there's anxiety and frustration and sadness and despair over something that wasn't true, you can come back into line with reality. You say, oh, right. That's not true. I have a blameless one. And you can live blamelessly, right? And there are other practical things. There are other practical ways that you can be blameless. Um, He talks about that, and we'll get into what it looks like um, to not be blameless. 
But blameless, uh, when you feel blame, blame here, the word that's used for blame refers to a comment someone else might make upon you, a reproach that they would give you, okay? That's what the word blame refers to. And then innocence is another way to think about this. Your innocence should be such that you should not entertain biting criticism over small things from others, right? Why? You know, when people say things to you, it can hurt, especially if it's over small, non-substantial, non-central things, especially if it's not done in love in a way that you can grow. Those things can hurt. Um, and they can, and they can, they can bring pain. You okay? Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, when people say things to you, you can be brought down. But when you remember your innocence in Jesus, you can actually escape being brought down as though you don't have an innocence when people are accusing you unjustly or bringing unfair criticism or bringing un... You know, you can deal with that because of the reality of who Jesus is in you. You've got to listen to the way that Jesus speaks to you. Paul says in his letter to the Romans that because of Jesus' work on your behalf, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? So your innocence is Jesus' first Jesus' innocence. Innocent refers to a comment that you might make about yourself. That's what we're getting at there, and that's what Paul's getting at. By the way that you live, you're to remove all cause of just criticism against yourself. So it's not only living with the internal reality that you're innocent in Jesus, but it's live in such a way that you really try to take away every cause that you would give somebody else to um, work against you or speak things against you. So you really, it's that much energy. What would bring the Lord pleasure? You're paying attention. You're paying attention to your life. Uh, There's that hymn, In Christ Alone. You know that hymn? We sometimes sing it. And there's a line there that, that brings me to tears most times that I sing it. And the line is, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. You have to understand that your family, you know, verse 15 says that your family identity is now as God's child. You're no longer isolated. You're no longer alienated. You're no longer alone. We're in this together because we have an elder brother, Jesus, who brings us into his family, and we can relate as family together. We're not alone. We have one another, and we have God as our father now and not our judge, right? So we have family identity as God's children. Paul calls us God's children. And your family identity without blemish. Go to Jesus first. What does it mean to be out without blemish? You remember the Passover. In a few moments, when we take the Lord's Supper, one of the things we'll say, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. In the Old Testament, when God's people were in slavery in Egypt and crying out under a fierce oppression, he came and he delivered them. But the only way that they could be delivered and not uh, killed with the rest of the oppressors, was to take an unblemished lamb and sacrifice it and put its blood on the doorposts and be in there eating the supper together so that the destroyer, the, the angel of death, would not pass over, would, would not kill them, right? So Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Our family identity is now one without blemish. If you do the internal part of this first, you're without blemish. 
You are in Christ. You're in the Passover lamb. When God looks at you, again, he's no longer a judge. He's no longer someone who's going to condemn you. He's someone who sees you with the righteous blood of the unblemished lamb. You're sprinkled with that. You're covered with that. Where does knowing and applying the gospel then stand out? Shining like lights is what we're talking about here. Where does it stand out in your life? Paul says that it's in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine. Crooked and twisted, Paul here links with grumbling and disputing. So we're going to look at crooked and twisted. We're going to look at grumbling and disputing, and we'll, we'll finish up with um, the contrary to that. Crooked and twisted come from the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 32.5. Do you know that? Sometimes it's called the LXX. Do you know that? In, in Paul's day, there was uh, a lot of Jews had gone to different parts of the world, and the common language of the day was Greek because of uh, the way that the armies of the world had conquered. There was a common language, Greek. It's like English is today for trade, right? And so there was a translation done of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, and that's what the Septuagint is. And so a lot, of, a lot of people were able to read this. And in Deuteronomy 32, 5, it says this. They have dealt corruptly with him. I'm talking about God's people with God in relationship. Crooked and twisted. What's the meaning of crooked and twisted? They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. So Paul's drawing upon that when he says that this is where your light is shining out. It's where you're no longer acknowledging God. It's in the midst of a context where people aren't acknowledging God for who he is and what he's done. Now, grumbling is ethically bad. It's selfish complaining, unbalanced criticism of small matters, impatience towards what is not understood, grudging unwillingness to be helpful, all expressed outwardly. All right? All expressed outwardly. Grumbling, grumbling is selfish complaining, all expressed outwardly. Disputing is questioning that um, is wholly inward. It's wholly inward. It's quite, disputing is questioning that's wholly inward. It's an activity of the mind and heart correspond, corresponds with the outward display of grumbling and complaining. It corresponds with it. Okay? So that the two words taken together, grumbling and disputing or questioning spirit, cover all of our actions towards others and our thoughts about them. If our actions towards others and our thoughts about them are grumbling and disputing or questioning, it shows our deep ingratitude in the face of the saving grace and continued activity of God in our life. A grumbling or questioning spirit is an expression of, one, ingratitude to God's providence, and two, it's an expression of lovelessness and a pride towards other people. Now, if you grumble and question, you're, you're engaging your will and you are working with energy, not for God, but for yourself. If you're grumbling and complaining or questioning and disputing and questioning, you are working with energy and engaging your will for yourself. And you grumble and dispute because your own will and your own work is blocked, not his work not his will. Understand? You're, you're grumbling and disputing or having a questioning spirit because what you want is being kept from you. James writes about this in his letter, four, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. You covet and cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have 
because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You see? So there's a crookedness and there's a twistedness to what's going on. Think about the things that you have to do this week. What are the things that lie before you? Do every one of them without grumbling. Do every one of them without disputing or without a questioning spirit. Listen, put it this way. How can engaging your will and working for his good pleasure, how can that lead you to grumble or to dispute? Do you see the disconnect? And often what we'll do is we'll mask the two. We'll, we'll say, oh, but I'm really working for God here, and yet you're grumbling and disputing, right? They don't connect, friends. They just don't. So you've got to realize that if you're seeing grumbling and disputing in your own life, that it's not from God. It's not working for his pleasure. It's your will and your work with energy for your own pleasure. So how can you engage your will and work for his good pleasure this week. Do it without grumbling or disputing because Jesus is your blamelessness. Do it without grumbling or disputing because Jesus is your innocence. Do it without grumbling or disputing because Jesus is your elder brother, firstborn among many sons and daughters that he's brought you into the family. And do it because Jesus is your identity without blemish. So shining as light in part means no grumbling or complaining. And Paul says this, it's fascinating, all things In all things, no grumbling or complaining. And in all things, in other words, the pleasure for which you're working towards God with your will and your work is to so fill your life and fill your activity and fill your, uh, the way that you handle your job and your colleagues at work and the people that you go to school with and your friends and even those that you're at odds with and haven't spoken to and the various people that you have in your life, the various areas you have in life, all of it is to be done with Christ's character and not with the crookedness and twistedness that comes from broken sin. Commentator Alec uh, Motier put it this way. It's important to see why Paul brings his teaching to this point of the inner light of Jesus whose radiance shines out in the darkness. The brightest and most glorious light was that of Jesus who though he was in the form of God and equal with God, brought his light into this poor world for the sake of sinners beneath the curse. It is the very life of Christ which the life-giving word imparts to us. This life must have its way, shining out into a crooked and twisted generation, exposing and condemning, illuminating and transforming. Testimony is part of becoming Christ-like. He says in verse 16 that we're to hold fast to the word of life. That's how we shine like lights in darkness. Just as a lantern holds within itself some radiant element, and just as from a lantern a bright outshining dispels the surrounding darkness, so a Christian also holds forth the word of life in everything that you do, in all things. You start with Jesus, you end with Jesus, and it's reflected. It reflects his character so that people in darkness, people who are turned away from God and into themselves, sometimes we as Christians struggle with the same problem. We turn away from God and into ourselves. The gospel is the answer. We need to hold up Jesus as our light and life. 
When you live in dependence upon Jesus, it's like a light in a dark place, not only for yourself, but for one another and for our context here in Philly. So, summarize. Like you would work out your muscles, something that's already yours, like you would work out your muscles in the gym, work out your salvation, something that's already yours if you've come to God through what Jesus has done, work it out. Think about what it means in your context, your life, the way that you live. Also, like a lantern shines out and what is darkened or hidden, the light of God's presence in your life shines out to others in their darkness, in their isolation, and it prevents your own darkness and isolation as well. We have a responsibility to live in line with the truth of what is already ours in Christ Jesus. Will you? He wants you to. He delights in you that you would do that. It gives him good pleasure that you would do that. Let's do it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have not left us alone, that you have not left us isolated, that you have not left us to ourselves and our own devices, that you have not led us, left us to be crooked and twisted but that you have brought us into your family. You've called us your own. You've called us children of God, that you um, have made us innocent, and that you have uh, made us resplendent with the character of Jesus more and more each day. We want to walk in line with the truth of that. We want to keep in step with your spirit. But we know that we cannot do this in and of our own strength. We need you, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, to fill our lives, to fill our minds, to fill our hearts with the great truths of what you've done for us so that they tremble outward with great energy, shining like light in a dark place, giving light, life, and hope to others through the proclamation of your great name. We ask for those things through your spirit and your fellowship now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.